Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22. 1 Samuel, chapter 22, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read this passage of Scripture in just a moment, or a portion thereof, a large portion of. 1 Samuel, chapter 22, is where I would like you to turn with me uh, this morning. This is our custom. We're working habitually through a book of the Bible, and we've made it to chapter 22, only about... 43 more months, and we may be in 2 Samuel, so that'll be good. Uh, Not really. Uh, We're going to pray together before we uh, continue today. Uh, The president uh, asked churches across the country to pray today, particularly for uh, those who are suffering in Houston, in the greater Houston area, and uh, we're going to do that this morning as we gather together. So let's pray, shall we? Oh, great God, we come before you this morning. You are the creator of all things. By the word of your power, you called them into existence, and you rule over all things. The Lord Jesus is the sustainer of all of creation. So we are right in coming to you this morning as we pray about this great natural calamity that has uh, struck the state of Texas and Louisiana and uh, the southeast. Lord, we come before you this morning. You have in your wisdom seen fit and in your sovereign power seen fit to allow this calamity to touch so many people and to cause such devastation and destruction. We are reminded this morning of what your word tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the creation groans under the weight of our sin. It is, it is burdened and labored by our rebellion against you. Father, we come before you this morning and ask, to ask you that you would show mercy and kindness. Lord, in particular, we, we think of those that we know and love who are in that area of the world. Uh, Jean Bachman mentioned a friend of hers on Wednesday. We, we um, looked at a picture this week of Jonathan and Alexis Brubaker and their daughters. Uh, we think of our friends Mike and Michelle Gag too, who... Uh, lost uh, much of their possessions in this flood. Uh, Lord, we do pray for these, our uh, friends and loved ones, that you would show kindness to them and strengthen the days that are to come. Lord, uh, they will have uh, needs. Um, every day they'll be missing something or, or feeling the loss of something or uh, struggling. Those two little girls, they lost their toys, Father. Well, we pray that you would show uh, them grace and give them strength. Uh, May they be patient with one another as they try to deal with adjusters and and, um, neighbors and, and, and grant that they would be kind. Lord, Jonathan has mentioned specifically his church in that area that is trying desperately to help people. Uh, Father, I pray that you would... um, enable them to represent the Lord Jesus well uh, in their region, in their area, that those followers of Jesus would be united and would be careful and wise in how they reach out to try to help people. Lord, for those who are grieving uh, this morning the loss of mothers or children or fathers or brothers, grandparents, Lord, I do pray that you would remind them that you are close to the brokenhearted. Lord, we are thankful to you for 
um, the kindness that was shown in the number of people who went out on their boats to rescue. There is the image of God in, on display as your common grace works through these uh, men and women who were there trying to rescue and save. Lord, uh, this morning too we pray for Elena. Um, we thank you for her. We thank you for her safe arrival. You knit her together, as we said, from your word in her mother's womb. And we are thankful to you for this baby. Lord, we do pray that you would uh, work through this uh, sometimes onerous and difficult system to provide a safe and happy and healthy place for this baby to uh, spend the weeks and months and years that will be of her life. Lord, I pray for Steve and Leslie. We pray that they would, that their faith would not fail in the midst of this as they are afraid and wondering and uh, worried about what Elena's future will be. Uh, we pray that you would grant them strength and grace in the midst of this uh, adversity and, and trouble. We do pray for Jackie too. Uh, Lord, um, your word tells us that you are a good shepherd. And, and Jackie, we believe, will find life and hope and wisdom and grace before the Lord Jesus. And we pray that in your kindness she might turn to you wholeheartedly for rescue and reformation and transformation. Lord, thank you as we sit here together today with your word open before us. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. We pray that it would correct us, teach us, guide us, that, that it might thoroughly equip us for following the Lord Jesus faithfully. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about a sure and certain way to become an enemy of God. Now, it's not language that we use very often to talk about being God's enemies. Does God have any enemies besides, of course, you know, Satan and demons and those things that are in the Bible? I imagine, I may be wrong about this, but I imagine that if you go out and ask most people, they will tell you they, that they believe that God doesn't have any human enemies. God loves everybody, right? Now, if you press them a little bit and, and you say, are you sure about that? Maybe they will admit that God... Well, that bad people, like Nazis and child molesters, are God's enemies. But in general, God loves everybody. He has no enemies. The problem with that is if you pick up this Bible and you read through it and take out everything that it says about enemies, even God's enemies, you will be left in the Bible with some inexplicable gaps. If God has no enemies, this book makes no sense. In fact, uh, in the first 50 Psalms, there are a hundred and, uh, sorry, in the first 50 Psalms, there are 14 references to people that God hates. Psalm 11:5. listen to what it says. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Makes you wonder about that saying, right? God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. He hates the sinner too. According to Psalm 11.5. It's not my intention to spend too much time in the ivory tower this morning, but I want to talk to you for just a minute about uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, uh, actually, I want to talk about his 
life, not necessarily his philosophy. Nietzsche was born in 1844. He died in 1900. And he was born into a line, a long line of Lutheran pastors. In fact, when he was a little child and as he became a teenager, his nickname around town was the Little Minister because everybody assumed he was going to become a Lutheran pastor just like his parents, just like his father and his grandfather. And in fact, he had very strong faith until he went to the University of uh, uh, Bonn in, uh, at age 19. That's the time that his opinion about Christianity began to change. Nietzsche developed, in fact, this caustic hostility toward Christianity. Every chance he had, he assaulted it. He said Jesus was weak to Nietzsche. He, he did not like Jesus because he was weak. And he said what the world really needs is a race of strong, competent um, supermen who would uh, renounce compassion and, and gentleness. His, his uh, philosophy actually appealed highly to the Nazis and the fascists in Italy. Uh, this is what Nietzsche said. He said, I condemn Christianity. I raise against the Christian church the most terrible of all accusations ever uttered. It is to me the highest of all conceivable corruptions. A man of spiritual depth needs friends unless he still has God as a friend, but I have neither God nor friends. What happened to Nietzsche, I, I wonder? It is, possible, it is possible for enemies of God to be born and raised in parsonages. One of our favorite uh, practices that we do as, as a church is we have baby dedications. So parents bring those cute little babies down and we pray for them. And I, I've said this before, I'm fairly certain that I'm the only person who closes my eyes when we pray for babies. Because the rest of you are peeking. You want to see which child is going to stick their finger up my nose and all sorts of stuff like that. God's enemies can be dedicated babies. That's why we pray so fervently for them. I'm prompted to ask these questions or think of, raise this topic because of what happens to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 22. A few chapters later, we're going to get there in a little bit, uh, chapter 28, verse 16, Samuel the prophet says to Saul, Why do you consult me, Samuel says, now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? God uh, says to Saul, you are my enemy. How can that be? Saul was, when he, we first meet Saul, he comes onto the scene and he wins this great military victory and he says, thanks be to God. God is the one who gave us this victory. I want to read this passage of scripture. I want to find out what happened to Saul and how it happened. This is one of the most horrific stories in all of the Bible. It's a cautionary tale. It's a warning to us about a certain and sure way to become an enemy of God. Now, before we read this, we should set the stage. Saul is holding court outside of his town of Gibeah, his hometown. He's the king, but God has rejected him as being king because of his disobedience. And Samuel the prophet has anointed David as king. David had served loyally in Saul's court, but Saul turned against him. And now David is running for his life in the wilderness. That's where everybody is. Um, Let's read. I'm going to stop quite a bit as we read and explain what's going on. So verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah with all his officials standing at his side. 
He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. There's a lot happening here just in, in these few verses. Right? First here, um, the text says that Saul is sitting in his court with his officials around him outside. They did outdoor court in the summer, apparently. And uh, Saul has his spear in his hand. Uh-oh. Does that remind you of it? Whenever Saul has his spear in his hand and he's sitting on his throne, something bad is going to happen. This is an ominous sign. I also notice here that, that Saul won't even in this passage use David's name. That son of Jesse. Uh, he's going to do that a little bit later to the priest, but uh, he's, he won't even name him. Do you see how, it, how paranoid Saul is at this point in time? He is, he is convinced that uh, everyone is against him. Everyone is out to get him. No one told him about the friendship between Jonathan and Saul. In fact, he thinks now that Jonathan is the chief conspirator against him and that he's using David to knock Saul off. And no one responds. No one says anything to him. Verse 9, we'll get to this in a minute, but Doeg the Edomite. I think the reason that nobody around Saul responds at all is because, well... Two reasons. One, Saul tends to throw spears at people who confront him. Okay, there's that. And the second thing they're not speaking is because um, they're David's friends. They fought with David in battle. They know David is loyal. They know Saul. Where did he get this idea that we're all conspiring against him? They They can't think of anything to say against him. Did you notice here how Saul had referred to um, to his enemies and the or to his officers and the gifts and privileges that he'd given them? Did you notice that? Um, it's exactly what Samuel had said what, what would happen. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they came to Samuel the prophet, the Israelites, and they said, we want a king, we want a king. And Samuel said, God is your king. No, we want a human king. We want a human king just like all the other nations who will go out and fight our battles for us. And Samuel said, that is a bad idea. Let me tell you why it's a bad idea. 1 Samuel eight fourteen. listen. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Saul is exactly the king they wanted. We want a king just like all the other nations. And, and, and that's exactly what they get. A king with his cronies. If God is your king, God doesn't have any cronies. Saul, as their king, has cronies. Uh, in the spring, Marvin Olasky uh, wrote a, an article in World Magazine about a book that's called The Beginning of Politics. And the Beginning of Politics is a book written by two professors at New York University. Their names are Moshe Helbertal and Stephen Holmes. And the book, The Beginning of Politics, is all about First and Second Samuel. And they argue that First and Second Samuel is unique, unlike any royal literature published in the ancient Near East. Most accounts of kings and thrones imagine the king as, as a godlike figure. He is virtually unconquerable. He's handsome, he's rich, he's studly, he's fearsome, and, and he defeats everybody who opposes him. That's how most ancient records, in fact, 
virtually all ancient records of ancient kings are written. But in this story, Saul and David, both of them at times, find themselves troubled and weak and doubting and fearful and paranoid. That's because the author of Samuel is arguing not that the king is God, but he is arguing that God is the king. I mention that because the uniqueness of these books points to their truthfulness. This is God's book. It's unlike any other ancient book that was written. It it stands in a class by itself and it tells us the truth. C.S. Lewis made similar arguments about the Gospels. Can we trust the Gospels? These accounts about Jesus. Some people think that they're legends, but listen to what C.S. Lewis said. As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. The Gospels are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time, and no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic dialogues, there are no conversations that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. Then he talks about the uh, story of the woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and how the Lord Jesus bends down to write in the dust. He says, In the story of, of the woman taken in adultery, we are told that Christ bent down and scribbled in the dust with his finger. Nothing comes of this, though. No one has ever based any doctrine on it. And the art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is purely a modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that the thing really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. So First and Second Samuel and the Gospels, by their uniqueness as literature and compared to everything that was written during their times, stands, they stand in a class by themselves because they're God's book and they speak the truth. But there's actually something more here. In, 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 there's a warning. In the beginning of politics, uh, Helbertal and Holmes argue that we see in this book this formative debate that takes place in politics. There is a discussion, and it happens in the debate behind the scenes of almost every bill that Congress passes or every decision that a president makes. And the debate is over the issue between security and freedom. How much of your freedom are you willing to sacrifice in order to bring about security? You all know this question. You know that if you've ever flown, right? How much of your freedom are you willing to give up to make sure that the plane is secure? Last time I flew, it had been a while, I was uh, standing on the opposite side of the security line getting redressed and all these people are putting, leaning over, putting their shoes on and their belts and everything. And I thought, this is just kind of humiliating. Here we are getting dressed out in public like this. We have sacrificed our freedom for our... But no one took over the plane. I was happy about that. Right? Freedom, security. What happened, and what happened in First Samuel in chapter 8 is that the people came to Samuel and said, we want security. We want a king who will fight for us. And Samuel said to them, it's going to cost you. And they said, we don't care. This debate is happening right here. 
what happens though further, we see a, a corruption of this because once you have the power to take people's freedom from them, bad things can happen. And here is the warning. Here is a warning. Look what happens to Saul. He gets paranoid. He's obsessed with keeping the power that he has. I mention that because you may in your life come to a place where you have a a position of of influence. You may come to a place of influence in your life. It may happen in your family or in your school or in the country or even uh, the county or the state or national level. Here's this warning. If you become obsessed with keeping the power or using the power for your own ends, it will trouble you. And there are all sorts of illustrations of that, aren't there? How many members of Congress are there? Let's see. Right? Here's the Bible's warning. Use whatever power God entrusts to you, whatever level of power it is, whether you're the uh, captain of the soccer team or you're a babysitter or a parent or an elder in a church or a senator or a Supreme Court justice, God has entrusted that power to you and, and every ounce of it you are to use for the benefit of those who are under your care. That's what power is for. That's what authority is for. David is actually, as we see the text unfold, David is going to use the authority that God has entrusted to him when he becomes king to bless the people under him. Saul is paranoid and a wreck. Now, that's a piece of Saul's antagonism with God. We we, we need to move on here. There's much more. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Doeg the Edomite is the only one who answers Saul, this foreigner. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said... I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions in the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, we'll stop here for just a minute here. Um, There is no mention of Ahimelech the priest inquiring of the Lord for David in chapter 21. We have a record in chapter 21 of David going to visit the priest and he gave him provisions and he gave him the sword of Goliath, but there's no mention of Ahimelech inquiring of the Lord and I wonder if Doeg is lying to Saul at this point in time. Let me explain why. Um, If he's lying, he's very clever. This is a great way to antagonize Saul because Saul and God are not on speaking terms right now. Saul has chased away the prophets and, and God has rejected him. They're not on speaking terms. Doeg the Edomite is implying though, hey, by the way, I saw David. He was with the priest. Oh, and, and God spoke to the priest to da- through the priest to David. David and God are on speaking terms. Saul, I don't think you and God are on speaking terms. Isn't that right? What a way to goad him, right? Isn't that smart? I think he might be lying. Psalm 52, David reflects on this and he speaks about Doeg and he calls him a liar. If Doeg is lying, then verse 15, we'll have to read a little bit differently. Um, We'll get to verse 15 again, but look at it right now here. Ahimelech the priest says, Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Maybe we should read it as if Ahimelech is saying... uh, I don't inquire of the Lord for anybody but you, king. And if I inquired for David that day, that was the first time. And do you think I did that for the first time? No, I didn't. Maybe. Not sure. Don't know. 
Doeg is sneaky, though. Well, let's, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 11. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub, son of Jesse, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of, or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they, were, they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. They have reverence enough for God not to act here. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Now, Abiathar, we're going to follow him a little bit uh, as his story unfolds. He's going to follow David. He's going to be with David. He's going to advise David as David's priest. And he's going to support David his whole reign until when David dies, Abiathar backs one of the other sons to become king, not Solomon. And then Solomon removes him from office. First Kings 2 talks about this, about how Abiathar is removed from office by Solomon. I mentioned that because what we have here is the murder of the priests, this whole family. And some people see in this the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made a long time ago in Samuel about Eli's family. These are the descendants of Eli, and they all get killed here in fulfillment of a prophecy that God had made. Perhaps, except that Kings attributes the removal of Abiathar to the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, in this book we have two families, Eli the high priest, Saul the king, both of them destroyed by their disobedience. Now we have to think carefully about the murder of these priests. It's a horrible story. Eighty-five men dressed for ministry before the Lord. Saul has reached a new level. On the horizontal level, Saul has reached a new level of antagonism toward David. He is out for blood and he doesn't care if he has to kill 85 men. It doesn't matter. He's going to go after David. On the vertical level, though, Saul has a new host of problems, a terrible host. He is making war on Yahweh. He's not just, it's not just priests that he's after. He is going to war, holy war, against God himself. Now let me explain. 
Do you remember the Old Testament concept of cherem? We've talked about that. There's two Hebrew words that we use a lot, uh, and in especially this passage of Scripture, there's chesed, God's loyal love, and then there's cherem. Both of them start with che. <laughs> anyway, cherem uh, is that concept in the Old Testament. It's sometimes translated as the ban. There are moments in the Old Testament when God commands Israel to completely eradicate a town or a tribe. They're supposed to kill every living creature within that town or tribe. We've talked about this before and explained how it's limited and it's for a specific purpose and often it is God's judgment against a specific nation or tribe or town. In 1 Samuel 15, God commands Saul to go and commit harem against the Amalekites. He's supposed to kill all of the Amalekites. And does he obey? No. He spares the, the uh, king, Agag is his name, and he spares some of the best animals for sacrifice. This was the disobedience. This began his rejection by God. But now, here in verse 19, he puts the entire town of Nob under Cherem. He slaughters everyone. He will not, Saul refuses to eliminate God's enemies. Instead, he will eliminate God's priests. Saul is making war on Yahweh God. It is hard to overstate how far he has fallen here. How horrible this crime is in the Bible. Saul, what happened to you that this is what makes sense to you? The issue that is driving him right now is whether or not he will accept God's anointed king. David is the issue. David is the issue over whether or not he, Saul, will go to war with God, will be God's enemy. So we can just say this here. The certain and sure way to become an enemy of God is to reject God's anointed king. That's what the Bible's telling us here. The certain and sure way to become God's enemy is to reject his anointed king. Saul's becoming very much like uh, what uh, Psalm 2 describes. I find this very interesting how how Psalm 2 is written and what David is doing. Look at what it says. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain, the text says. The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on, Mount, on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, the son says, the king says. God said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, Saul, Saul... Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Saul, you are opposing God's anointed king. You are becoming God's enemy. Now, it's not difficult to see how the Bible picks the thread of 1 Samuel 22 and carries it further in the story. Remember that Samuel comes to us in the, came to the New Testament church in a collection of books that were put together 
for a people that, that were, were far past the time that David was alive. This book was collected and, and handed to them. David was long gone. The issue as they read 1 Samuel 22 is not about David. That was in the past. The issue for them is about God's king who is to come, namely the Lord Jesus. So we can even go further as we apply this here. The certain and sure way to become God's enemy is to reject the anointed king. The certain and sure way to become God's enemy is to reject the Lord Jesus. It's what this passage is teaching us. It's what it's saying to us. I can make it more explicit. In fact, it's one of the themes of the Apostle John. Look what John wrote in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. If you reject the Lord Jesus, you are an enemy of God. John 5 makes the same point. Well, we're going to skip it now and look at 1 John 5, 11. It says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The certain and sure way to become an enemy of God is to reject the Lord Jesus. Actually, things are are worse than you may imagine. Some of you realize this. You're already thinking about how the Bible unfolds. I've used the phrase, become an enemy of God. You actually were born an enemy of God. Colossians 1.21 teaches us, it says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is true of everyone. That's how you naturally are without Jesus. God's enemy. I've told you before about how much I don't like green beans. The vegetable of the devil. I don't like green beans. I like cauliflower and broccoli and corn and carrots. I even like Brussels sprouts but not green beans. And as far as I know, I have hated them my whole life. Uh, My mother will tell you uh, that I used to eat them, but I don't remember it, and I think it was part of her ruse to get me to eat them as a child, I think. As far as I'm concerned, I have always hated green beans. I was born hating green beans. I never chose to hate green beans. I was also born an enemy of God. I didn't choose to. I didn't have to choose. That's the way I was born. And I have been nurtured in my God hatred too. I have a friend. He's a pastor in western New York. We grew up together uh, in uh, Perry. He was born in Maine, though, and he was trained early on by his family to love the Boston Red Sox. Uh, This week on, on Facebook, he posted a picture of his three daughters. All of them are younger than six, and all three of them, there they were standing in Fenway Park wearing their Boston Red Sox gear, and, and he said, I'm training them young. He's discipling them. He's training them to cheer for the Red Sox. I know some of you who are Yankees fans think someone should call CPS, but, but uh, you did the same thing, right? You put your child in that Yankees onesie. You nurtured them in their love You discipled them as a fan. We are born enemies of God and then we come into this world where we are trained every day to maintain this enmity against God. I never had to teach my children how to be selfish or how to lie or how to fight 
They come by it very naturally and they see me do it too. You are God's enemy. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves his enemies. That's what Romans 5.10 says. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies, but he rescued us through his son. See, the Lord Jesus is not just the pivot point upon which you are an enemy with God or your enmity with God is revealed. He is also the one who reconciles you to God by his death on the cross. He took upon himself all of the enmity that is mine by nature and by choice. We can put it in terms of Psalm 2. He's the one who was crushed with a rod. He was the one who was dashed to pieces like pottery on the cross. He was scoffed at. He was rebuked. He was terrified by God's wrath for me in my place. And he died and rose again. When John said you must receive him, he's talking about receiving him as your savior, your rescuer, owning your guilt before God and laying hold of Christ's substitutionary death, claiming it as your own, knowing and trusting that Jesus provided sufficient payment for you. That is the best news in the whole world. Our church is committed to trumpeting this news of how you can be reconciled with God. We, we do everything that we can at the center of it, at the center of our WANA program and our Sunday school classes and our, our uh, Glimpse Ladies Bible studies and the center of Man U is this, uh, this, this hope. We want to plead with people who are enemies of God that you can be reconciled to Him through the Lord Jesus. So here's this warning that is in this passage. And I, I want to... Think about it specifically with you this morning. Particularly, I'm thinking of those of you who are here not by choice. Someone made you come. Maybe you were happy to, but there's just you know there was no choice in your household because you're 12 or 13 or 14 or 8 or 9. You just know that Sunday's coming, you've got to get in the car. When it's time to leave, we're going. We're going to church, you don't have a choice. And here you are, and here you sit. Uh, and, and you've been hearing people talk about the way that I'm talking. You've been hearing people talking like this for your whole life. Jesus haunts you. He's the answer to every Sunday school question you've ever been asked since 2005. As you get older, your options are going to increase. You'll have more choices. You're going to, at some point in time, live in a place where someone won't be sitting in the car ready to go to Sunday school. You're going to be exposed to different ideas about what it means to live a good life. Listen to me this morning. If you turn from the Lord Jesus, you are setting yourself up as an enemy of God. There are young adults, I know them. They sat in those pews ten years ago. They heard me saying these same things and they have turned from the Lord Jesus and they have become God's enemy. Look at this story. Look at what happens to this king. We're going to trace his steps. God is ferocious with his enemies. Don't join Saul on this path. The certain and sure way to become an enemy of God is to reject the Lord Jesus. 
Lee Strobel wrote a book. It's a fine book. It's called The Case for Christ. He wrote it several years ago. And he opens this book with a conversation that he had with a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton in the 1940s was a preaching associate of Billy Graham. He would fill arenas uh, talking to people about the Lord Jesus. And Charles Templeton, though, started having doubts. He eventually left the faith, left the ministry. He wrote a book, and it was called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Lee Strobel went to visit him. He was 83 years old when Lee Strobel interviewed him. He was ailing, suffering with Alzheimer's. Um, and, and Strobel asked him what he thought about the Lord Jesus, about Jesus. And, and, and Strobel was surprised at what Charles Templeton said. Listen, I'm going to quote him. He was the greatest human being, Charles Templeton said. He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. Human being, he'll say that a couple of times. He doesn't think Jesus is the Savior. He was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. It's a great tragedy of this man's life. I miss him. It's a sad story. Um, It's worse if you will not receive him. It's not just a question of whether or not you will miss Jesus or whether or not that sentimental tie you have to your childhood sitting in these pews will come to an end. You are God's enemy. That's what happens when you reject the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and this is a sobering and terrible passage bloody in the Bible. All these priests and their wives and their children and their animals dead. Lord, it is grievous for us not just to think about this murder that took place, these murders, but but what, what Saul is doing or more importantly, what we do when we turn from the Lord Jesus. Lord, it is heartbreaking. These, these pews are filled this morning. There's no more room in them. But there used to be people sitting here who have walked away. We, are, we grieve for them. Father, we, we pray that you would show mercy to them. We know that apart from the Lord Jesus, there is no hope. And they have turned for a variety of reasons away Oh, Lord, we pray that you would guard those who remain. Help us. Help us to encourage one another daily so that our faith will not fail. Father, you are ferocious with your enemies. You are just and righteous. We acknowledge that before you, and we plead for your mercy in the midst of your judgment. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.